Hello and welcome to another Bible study with Bill Allen from West Irwin Church of Christ in very hot Tyler, Texas. Glad that you're able to join me today, either live as I'm running a minute or two late. Sorry about that. Uh, appreciate you hanging out and holding on for me. Uh, or if you're watching later, either on my Facebook page or on our West Irwin Live or West Irwin Church of Christ Facebook pages, or on our website, westerwin.com, under social media and other resources, and on, on our uh, live streaming and uh, uh, social and live streaming page under video archives. That's what I'm trying to say. And so I'm glad that uh, you're with me today. I'm glad that we have uh, this lesson uh, today because it is one that is, um, it, it's really an exciting um, lesson and it starts with a couple of stories about Elisha. We're going to look at Obadiah and Joel uh, and not too many boys named Obadiah these days but we do have a lot of Joels still uh, but both of those are Old Testament prophets and we're going to look at both of those in just a few moments but before we leave Elijah and Elisha, two of the earliest prophets if that we read about in scripture, I want us to look at one more or two stories about Elisha. Elisha is that guy that did took over for Elijah after uh, he took that fiery chariot right chariot right into heaven, and then Elisha did all of those miracles. And one of the miracles that he does is spoken about in Second Kings five, one that we didn't discuss uh, before when we were talking about Elisha last Thursday. In 2 Kings 5, there is a man who is not one of the people of God. He is actually a Syrian or an Aramean, uh, and his name is Naaman, and he's a very high up official uh, for the king of Syria. And as he is there, he is a man uh, who is a uh, leper, and he is looking for cleansing and healing. I'm sure he's tried everything in the world that he could and it just so happens that one of the servant girls that are there uh, uh, serving the officials uh, is uh, Hebrew and she says I know of a man who can help you I know of a man who is a prophet of God and his name is Elisha and so Naaman sends word uh, to Elisha, to actually the king of Judah and of Israel, and says, hey, I want you to uh, heal me of my leprosy, send Elisha. And, and the king of Israel says, goes to Elisha and says, what, what kind of trouble have you cost me now? Now this guy's going to come in and he's going to totally destroy us if I don't get somebody to heal him. And Elisha says, don't worry, I've got this. God has got this. And so Elisha goes and he sends word to Naaman and Naaman hears the message of the prophet of what he has to do to uh, be healed. And he says, I want you to go and wash in the Jordan River seven times and then you'll be healed. Well, Naaman is thinking, no way, no way, no way. I don't, I don't want to do this. I don't, come on, I don't want to do this. Uh, there, there are better rivers here. Uh, I figured that he would come and do some kind of magic hocus pocus kind of thing, uh, have his hand over my body and do something incredible just to go and wash in the Jordan seven times this dirty river of the Hebrews. I, I don't think so. Well, his servant girl, uh, uh, the servant uh, talked to him 
and his other servants talked to him and they said, look, if he had told you to do something fantastic, wouldn't you have done it? How, how much more should you do this, this thing that he has called you to do? What have you got to lose, basically? And so sure enough, Naaman the Syrian goes to the Jordan River and washes himself seven times and sure enough, he is cleansed of his leprosy. He goes back to Elisha, to his servant Gehazi, remember crazy Gehazi, and he tells him, hey, look, I, I can't believe this. This is such a miracle. I, I want to do something for you. I want you to, I, I want to give you something. What can I pay you? And Elisha says, no, you don't, you don't owe us anything. You don't owe us anything. And Naaman says, well, that's a, this is an incredible blessing. I can't thank you enough. And, and he says, I, I will certainly worship your God, the, the God of Israel, who is the true God. But he says, listen, sometimes when I go with the king and, I, and he wants me to go in with him before our false God, I just pray that God would forgive me for when I do that. And, and Elisha tells him to go in peace. Kind of an interesting interaction there about that thing. Of course, the story doesn't quite end there because crazy Gehazi thinks, man, my master has lost it. He could have gotten all kinds of stuff from this guy. This guy's a big wig and he was more than happy to give us stuff. And so he goes and he has concocts this story and gets some, some items from, uh, from Naaman. And of course, Elisha, <laughs> you would think that Gehazi would know that Elisha's going to know he's a prophet. He has all this kind of crazy power but he doesn't and so uh elisha goes to him and he says didn't you know that i would that i i would know didn't you know that i would know what you did and he says the the leprosy that had been on naaman will now be on you and so just an incredible story and one more story about elisha uh the prophet and it's found in second kings six and seven and it's this incredible story where uh, some of the Samaritan army is going, or the Syrian army is going after the people of Israel. And uh, God strikes them with blindness through the prophet Elisha. And uh, uh, the part that had gone, the men who had gone to, to try to capture Elisha. And, um, and so Elisha strikes them with blindness and then he, they lead them uh, where they think is back to Syria, but instead it is to Samaria, the capital of Israel. And they, the Lord restores their sight and they look at, and they see that they're in enemy territory and completely surrounded. And, uh, and, uh, you know, the King says, should I, should I kill them? Should I kill them? And Elisha says, no, no, of course not. They're, they're prisoners. You should treat them like prisoners. So give them food and water, uh, rest and then send them back uh, because the Lord has done this. And that's exactly what they do. And after that, uh, there is a great peace with the, uh, with the people of Israel. But there's one of those times in, that, in those chapters that it's talking about um, a siege. This was when the Syrians were attacking or Arameans were attacking Samaria, the capital of the Northern Kingdom of Israel. They lay siege to them for so long that uh, things are getting very desperate in there. And there's this uh, army commander in there that is uh, that hears the prophet say, you know, this time tomorrow, everything's going to be worth nothing because we're going to have plenty. It's going to be amazing to turn around. And he doesn't believe it. And Elijah tells him, well, it's going to happen, but you won't get to enjoy it. 
And so sometime during that time, there are four lepers who are outside the city and they say, look, you know, everybody in the city is starving uh, of our own people. So what have we got to lose by going over to um, the uh, Syrians and at, at least we'll be fed? And so they do, but the Lord had caused them to have this uh, crazy rumor, fear go through them to where they all just get up and leave right in a second. They don't take any of their stuff. They just, the army just leaves and there's no more siege, but the Israelites don't know that. So these four lepers go and they go to the camp and they're ready to surrender. And they uh, they find all this stuff and, and nobody there guarding it. And so they start gorging themselves and they start saving stuff and burying it and all of that. And then, then they look at each other and they say uh, those incredible words in 2 Kings chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. They say, what we're doing is not right. It's not right. This is a day of good news. And here we are keeping it to ourselves. Uh, we should take word back to our people and let them know of this good news. And that's exactly what they do. And of course, they're not believed at first, and rightly so. And so the king sends a, a few soldiers to the Syrian camp to see if what they've said is true. And it, it, it really is. And so they go back and they spread the word and the people have a stampede. I mean, they have a rush to get out the gate and to the camp so that they can have food themselves. And um, sure enough, that army commander that had questioned Elisha uh, he is trampled in the stampede, and he is unable to partake of that. But that great scripture in Second Kings chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, uh, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news. That's And here we are keeping it to ourselves. That's something that we all should be reminded of. We have the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that Joel is going to prophesy about in just a few minutes. And, and yet, sometimes we keep it to ourselves when there are people who need that message so desperately. Um, as you talk, as you converse, look for opportunities that the Lord is giving you to put in a good word for Jesus, as Milton Jones used to say from the northwest part of the country. Put in a good word for Jesus. Try to direct that conversation towards uh, the Lord. And when you have the opportunity, as 1 Peter 3 says, uh, and you're asked, what, why in the world do you have hope? Why in the world do you have joy in your life at such a difficult time? Uh, you can say, well, it, it is a difficult time, and I don't deny that, but I have Jesus in my life. And, 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 and that makes all the difference, and I wish you could have Jesus in your life, too. That's all it takes. It's not, it's not hard it's something that can flow out so naturally. This is a day of good news, and we're not doing right by keeping it to ourselves. Well, try to find the book of Obadiah. Obadiah is in those minor prophets. We call them minor prophets simply because uh, they're shorter. <laughs> you have long books like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Daniel and Ezekiel, and then you have all these other guys like Hosea and Micah and Joel and Jonah that we'll look at on Thursday and Obadiah that we're going to look at right now. Uh, these are not minor by their words or by their power at all. Uh, some of the greatest words in Scripture are found in great places like Hosea uh, chapter 6, verse 6, uh, Micah chapter 6, verse 8. Uh, so many incredible statements, and the statement that we're going to read in just a moment uh, from Joel 2 is a, is a prophecy that, 
that Peter acknowledges as being fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Incredible statements. So they're not minor as far as importance or power or message, but they are shorter. Uh, and so I get that. Some of Bill's sermons are, are minor sermons. They're shorter. Not very many, uh, but some. And uh, I hope that if you haven't heard my sermon from this past Sunday, that you'll do that. You can do that at our website, westerwin.com, Irwin with an E, R-W-I-N. Go to our social media and resources page and find our live streaming uh, page and click on the link for video archives and you'll see my sermon from this past Sunday, Who is Your God? It's only 28 minutes, uh, but I, um, I, I, think it's a, I, I think some important things are said. And I hope that you'll listen to that and let me know what you think. Obadiah, there's some question as to when he lived. I mean, these Old Testament prophets especially, and of course some of the New Testament books too, we're just not completely sure exactly uh, when they wrote and when they lived. We know pretty much because just like with the Psalms, by reading the content, we can tell pretty much what's going on. Sometimes they'll give us a lot more clues than that. But with Obadiah, uh, we're not for sure. There are two main thoughts. One thought is what Dr. F. Lagarde Smith says, which is why we're reading Obadiah now at this point in Israel's history, uh, because he thinks maybe it was written about the time when Edom, the Edomites, the descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob, um, the son of Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob and Esau were the twins, uh, Jacob was this chosen son through whom uh, the, the, the kingdom would come. Uh, the law, the kingdom of Israel, the, Moses and Aaron and all of them. And then ultimately, um, of course, uh, Jesus of Nazareth. But Esau uh, was the ancestor of the Edomites and they were enemies of the Jews. And uh, a lot through their history. And so you have lots of choices because Obadiah condemns the Edomites. So you have lots of options as to when uh, the people of God and the Lord himself would be angry with the Edomites. Um, and, and so uh, Brother Smith has it uh, here. I, I think that Obadiah is probably written uh, later after the Israelites are attacked uh, by the Babylonians, the southern kingdom of Judah and Jerusalem. It's very clear that uh, the Edomites reveled in that um, destruction of the city of Jerusalem, tearing down the walls, destroying Solomon's temple, carrying off the people into exile. In fact, Psalm 137 verse 7 specifically says the Edomites were there uh, hollering, tear it down, tear it all down. And it was a, a very horrible thing, especially since they have a shared ancestry. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and uh, were, were their ancestors together, and then Isaac had Jacob and Esau. And so uh, Obadiah is a prophet that I think makes sense that it's probably at that time uh, when the uh, uh, southern kingdom of Judah was carried off into exile. But either way, uh, the Edomites were enemies of the people of God often in their history during this time. And so we read about this uh, book of Obadiah. Uh, it's one chapter. One of these days I'm going to preach a, a series of sermons on one chapter books like Obadiah and 2 John and uh, 3 John um, uh, and Jude in the New Testament. And, you know, there, there are some others like that. And so um, I'm looking forward to that, but it's not on my calendar right now, but someday. 
uh, someday. And Obadiah is a, is a great, great story. In fact, it asks the question without using these words, am I my brother's keeper? Remember when Adam and Eve had their sons, Cain and Abel, and Cain killed Abel because he was jealous of him because God had accepted his sacrifice and, and not Cain's. And, uh, and so God asks Cain, where is your brother? And that's when Cain says, uh, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer to that question to Cain and to us is yes. And the answer to that question in Obadiah's day was yes. Uh, the Edomites gloated over their brother, their brother Israel, and, uh, and how uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, if that is when this is written, had been taken into captivity. And, and Obadiah asks that question, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer, of course, is yes. And so the long history that Edom or Esau had, the descendants of Esau had with God's people uh, is, is clear. Edom was located south of Judah, south of the Dead Sea. So they were their southern neighbors. Um, Eliphaz, one of Job's friends, uh, was, it seems, a descendant of Esau. Uh, they refused Moses and the Israelites' passage at the time of the Exodus. They had to go around Edom. They fought against Israel, as I said, at various times. Uh, they were subject to Israel uh, under the United Kingdom of David and Solomon. And that's probably why they um, gloated and were so proud and happy with uh, the times of trouble and suffering uh, that the Israelites endured, and I think especially in the time of the, of, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of the southern kingdom of Judah. They were ancestors of the family of King Herod, so they had some shared uh, blood and experience with uh, the Israelites. Um, and um, it could be that Jeremiah uh, uh, quoted from the book of, of Obadiah in his prophecy as well. Well, you can, Obadiah's uh, just 21 verses. It's one chapter. It's not very long. I could read the whole thing right now and it uh, wouldn't take much time. But what I'm going to do is just give you a brief outline. In the first nine verses, Obadiah prophesies about Edom's destruction, the nation of Eden, Edom, the Edomites, and their destruction. And then in verses 10 through 14, he uh, recounts their sins and how they had turned their backs on, on Judah and even worse. And then in verses 15 through 21, he speaks again of, of uh, Edom's uh, punishment and Israel's blessing. Uh, I want to read that middle section, though, in Obadiah. There's only one chapter, so verses 10 through 14, and this will give you an idea of what Obadiah's message is. Obadiah, starting at verse 10, because of the violence against your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be destroyed forever. On the day you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor gloat over them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors 
in the day of their trouble. Well, you can see why uh, uh, the Jews and Obadiah and the Lord would be very upset and angry with the Edomites if they did all of those things. And so verse 15 promises, the day of the Lord is near for all nations, as you have done, it will be done to you, your deeds will return upon your own head. And history tells us that that certainly was the case. Uh, the book of Obadiah ends with these promising words uh, to the Israelites, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. Uh, and that is certainly, certainly the case, exactly what would happen. And that leads us to Joel. Uh, Joel is another one of those early prophets, and, um, and, and he leads us into this time uh, when we'll be looking ahead to the time of the church of Jesus Christ. How is that possible, Bill? How is that possible when we're, you know, we're just getting into the 8th century, Joel probably writing in the 9th century, uh, in the 800s, or perhaps in the early 700s. Ultimately, there are some wonderful, incredible prophets in the 8th century B.C., the 700s, the time when the northern kingdom of Israel is carried off into captivity and exile um, by the Assyrians. And during that time, there are some great prophets, Isaiah, Micah, Hosea, uh, Jonah, probably the first one of those uh, that we'll see as, um, as he deals with. Uh, with uh, some of those Assyrians in their capital of Nineveh. But that's Thursday. That'll be a great lesson. The first sermon I ever preached was on the book and the story of Jonah. <laughs> so that'll be fun for me on Thursday. Uh, yes, Bill was once a teenager, and yes, Bill once preached for the first time, and it was on Jonah. Uh, but before we get there, we're going to look at Joel who may be a little bit earlier than those uh, 8th century prophets uh, that start with uh, Jonah. Joel's message is simply this, rend your heart. Uh, break your heart, cut your heart open to the Lord. Um, and so there's a lot that he has uh, to say. Um, he speaks of judgment, first of all. Several times in the book of Joel is this statement, the day of the Lord. That phrase is given. We see it uh, several times. At the beginning, in chapter 1, Joel talks about a, a great invasion of locusts. I think, and I, I agree with many, including uh, Dr. Smith, F. Lagarde Smith, who say that Joel is taking advantage of something that actually happened. There was an actual... Uh, devastation of locusts in the land. And uh, as any good preacher will do, um, not let a good time or a bad time go to rest without making it into a sermon. That's exactly what Joel does. And he says, just this, these, they, they've torn up our land. Uh, they've torn up our land. And uh, he's going to say and apply it to uh, the upcoming uh, destruction uh, that will come when God uh, punishes his people. Uh, but first, look at Joel chapter 1, verse 15. Alas, for that day, verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Other prophets would say at times, uh, woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. You don't get it. <laughs> the day of the Lord, in your case, if you're away from God, is not a good thing. But for those of us who are trusting in the Lord, 
the prophets say, and the New Testament says, including that great passage uh, in 2 Peter 3. Uh, those of us who are watching, who are looking at, uh, ahead with eyes of faith and obedience, we are, uh, we're okay with the day of the Lord coming. Uh, that It can't come soon enough for those who trust in the Lord. But for those who are enemies of God, for those who are living selfish lives of disobedience, uh, not loving their neighbor as themselves, not uh, trusting in and obeying uh, the word and will of God, um, the day of the Lord will bring destruction and devastation. And that's Joel's message. And he likens it to this invasion of locusts. Uh, then in chapter uh, 2, he begins to talk about an invasion of enemies, physical enemies, that will be very similar to this invasion of locusts. In chapter 2 of Joel, verses 1 and 2, Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was in ancient times, nor ever will be in ages to come. Uh, that devastation that the locusts brought would be nothing like the devastation of the enemies that would be coming to mete out punishment on God's people because of their uh, sins. And uh, Joel gives uh, the same message to other nations as well um, in chapter 3. But his message is, in, in light of that, people should repent. Just as John the Baptist said, just as Jesus and his disciples said, just as Scripture calls on us, we are all sinners, so we should repent. We should change our direction and turn away from our lives of selfishness and sin and turn to that life of trusting obedience and faithfulness to God. We read that in chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Chapter 1 of Joel 13 and 14. Put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. Sackcloth and ashes were those things that they used to signify that they were mourning. God calls on them to lament and to mourn and to repent. Uh, verse 14, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Cry out in penitence in chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. These words, a very important part of the book of Joel. Chapter 2, verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. I hope as you've read through the Old Testament already, and we still have a long way to go, uh, that you're struck by how many times Scripture in the Old Testament calls on people to uh, come to God and serve Him wholeheartedly. And in this case, to repent with their whole heart. Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Verse 13, rend your heart and not your garments. They would tear their clothes. They would tear their garments. They would put on the sackcloth and dust themselves with ashes to signify that they were mourning. Well, God says that's all well and good, but you need to tear your heart open to my word and my will. And not just your clothes. Verse 13 of Joel 2 again. Rend your heart and not your garments. 
Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. Grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Verse 15, blow the trumpet in Zion. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the assembly. Bring together the elders. Gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, Spare your people, Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, Where is their God? Wow, a great call to repentance from the prophet Joel calling on everybody, the priests, the kings, the paupers, the servants, those who are in um, uh, serving in the temple, the, the bride and the groom getting ready to be married, uh, mothers with young children, everyone. It's time to repent. It's time to pray. It's time to ask the Lord to bless. I think it's time for us to repent and to pray in our nation too, and even in our churches. As concerned as I am for our nation, I'm far more concerned about our churches and my brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, that's who Joel was primarily concerned with as well, was the people of God. It's, it starts with us. It's, it's a time for us to repent and to lament and to mourn and to seek God's forgiveness and then perhaps to call upon others to join us in asking for mercy from the Lord who is compassionate and who is wanting so desperately to bestow that grace and mercy upon us. Just an incredible, incredible uh, statement. And then in Joel chapter 2, skipping down a bit, are these words that Simon Peter will look back to in Acts chapter 2 and will say, uh, this is the fulfillment. This is what the prophet Joel was talking about. In Jerusalem, in Acts chapter 2, uh, on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus, uh, after the Passover, after Jesus had been killed, uh, they met and they received the Holy Spirit. And people said, oh, they're drunk. They, they, this is crazy. They heard the Gospels preached in their own native tongue by these 12 fishermen, these men that didn't have any training at all. And yet they... Uh, Peter says, no, 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 it's too early in the day for us to be drunk. And besides, this is from the Lord. This is what Joel was talking about. And this is the passage that Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2. And it starts in Joel 2, beginning at verse 28. Joel 2, 28. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone, verse 32, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there will be deliverance, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. It's interesting to me, and Peter repeats it, this 
uh, statement, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, verse 31, just before it, blood and fire and billows of smoke, wonders in the earth. Well, I don't think they saw all those things literally on the day of Pentecost. I think we would have heard a little bit more about that. But this is very apocalyptic language, that symbolic language that speaks about extraordinary events, things that will uh, change the course of the world. And that's exactly what happened when the church began in Acts chapter 2. Uh, beginning with the apostles, they received that Holy Spirit. They preached that repentance and remission of sins could be had only in the name of Jesus Christ. The message came out, repent and be baptized, every one of you. In the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you too will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and they received that indwelling spirit and then as the Apostles laid their hands on them which I think is testified in the New Testament in several places including in Acts chapter 8 and 19 and others um, men and women uh, everyone who became a Christian was given that opportunity to uh, do miraculous incredible things uh, through the Holy Spirit. And, and I think that's exactly what Joel is talking about here. And Peter certainly sees it fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. 3,000 were baptized that first day and the church was off and running. And it was just an incredible, incredible time. Um, well, then we turn to chapter 3 and we read these words that uh, the prophet Joel uh, is beginning to end his book. And he says this, and um, we'll start with verse 14. Sure, why not? Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Sounds ominous, doesn't it? The sun and moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. How the people of Joel's day must have been comforted, knowing that even though there will be difficult armies coming and it'll be like locusts ravaging the land, God has not forgotten his people and he will relent and he will deliver and everyone will know that the God uh, of Israel is the one true and living God. Just incredible stories. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We hear that again uh, in Acts 2. We hear that again in Romans 10 uh, throughout uh, the early days of the church in those first few decades that are talked about in the historical book of Acts. Uh, just an incredible story. So as we think of all of these um, uh, passages that we've discussed today, so much that you're reading, so many weird kings and uh, so much um, uh, difficult uh, uh, transfers of power and, and uh, murders and coups and all of that. And yet in the midst of all of that is the presence of the Lord for those who will trust in him and who will do what Joel calls on all of us to do, even today as we read these words again in Joel chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. 
I pray that you and I and all we come in contact with and all who breathe air through their lungs, that all will come to accept those messages, those words, and, and be obedient wholeheartedly, rending their heart, not just their garments, serving him, starting with weeping and mourning, and then giving their lives to God through Jesus Christ. Amen.